0: What does it take to be The Millionaire Next Door? And how has that millionaire changed since the book with that title by Drs. Thomas J. Stanley and William Danko was released in 1996? Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Thomas J. Stanley's daughter, Dr. Sarah Stanley Falah, shares what she learned in writing The Next Millionaire Next Door with her father. Thomas Stanley passed away in 2015, and Dr. Falah completed their book and released it in 2018. Plus, Joe and Big Al answer your money questions. What do you do with universal life insurance policies with large cash values? And will you pay California income tax on a Roth conversion made after you move from California to a no-income tax state like Texas? I'm producer Andy Last, and here with our guest are the hosts of Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA.
1: Dr. Sarah Stanley Falla. 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 Yes.
2: yes. Exactly. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, yeah.
1: You are an industrial psychologist. You're director of research at the Affluent Market Institute and the founder and president of Data Points.
2: Yes, yes.
1: And you have a book that came out. It was a couple of decades after your father wrote one of uh, the better personal finance books, uh, "The Millionaire Next Door," and so the book that came out is the next. The next millionaire next door. Yes. Yes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So it's been uh, kind of been a family affair, if you will, for a long time. And the book came out in October and it really looked at how things have changed over the last 20 plus years um, in terms of what self-made affluent Americans look like.
1: Yeah, your father's book was like mandatory reading when I got into the business about twenty years ago.
2: <laughs> yep, yep, and, absolutely.
1: And, well, let's start here. For some of our listeners, we have a lot of listeners that you know have probably lived under a rock and are not familiar with your father's book. Can yeah, you tell, or they're younger, or or could be? Uh, could you tell a little bit about the research that your dad did, and then his book, and then why twenty some odd years later? You guys decide, hey, let's do this again. I'm curious on the studies and the research that you did, what you found w- was different and what you found was, w- was the same.
2: You know, my father was a marketing research uh, professor for a long time. That was his focus. He really was focused on understanding affluent uh, Americans and kind of how they became that way. And one of the segments that he found early on in his research back in the 80s was the self-made blue-collar millionaire, which he, you know, eventually deemed the millionaire next door. And so he really looked at the behaviors and the attitudes and the lifestyle of these folks that were able to take their income and transform it into wealth on their own, again, without, you know, inheriting a bunch of money or signing some kind of major league contract or something like that. And so that book was published in 96 when I was, let's see, a junior in college. I think that's right. And really what he found, again, that there were certain habits. Of course, a lot of us know what those are, and it's pretty straightforward. But in 96, it it wasn't. So things like being frugal, spending time managing your investments, all those things that kind of we know today lead to wealth were sort of new, if you will, back then. And so, you know, over the last several years, I began working closely with him. And as the 20th anniversary was coming up, we started looking at, you know, maybe things have changed, maybe with the advent of, you know, a lot of the technologies that are out there that can help you manage finances and also distract you from from managing finances. um, You know, what's changed? And so we began kind of, you know, that that journey to see what was different and if there was anything different.
1: Junior in college. And so mm-hmm. your dad writes this epic book. <laughs> Probably finance wasn't on the radar at that point, or were you going to follow in your father's footsteps at that point?
2: Yeah, so so I was a junior uh, at the University of Georgia, and I had other things going on. Do you know what I mean? So I was- <laughs> you know what, Sarah?
1: I was a junior myself yeah. the same year, but I was a junior yeah. at the University of Florida. Oh, and, no. and, and he had oh, other no. things on his and, mind. Yeah. And- yeah. yeah. Trust me. Yeah. I had yeah. a lot of other things on my mind yeah. as well.
2: So, you know, it's funny. again, I, I'm a psychologist, so my interest is always in why we do the things that we do. And finance was not it w- was not on the radar for sure. That was not something that I was interested in. I, I loved the research side of what he did. So the survey research and the methodologies he used and all of that. But you know, it really was later on um, after having worked in human resources technology and human resources specifically, that I began seeing, you know, hey, there's a way to take this information and actually create assessments, which is what my company does but then again also study you know how people can be more satisfied in terms of the job that they have well if they're you know managing their finances at home well things are going to be better in terms of their job satisfaction and performance and things like that so that's kind of how i we kind of uh, merged together if you will several years ago
1: you know i'm thinking we probably crossed paths at the the biggest cocktail party. And Jack's. Jacksonville.
2: Yeah, That's you right. You probably exactly. did. Uh, that's right. <laughs> wow. We may not remember it, but yeah. we might have. you were both juniors yes. in
1: college, yes. yes. I guarantee we probably don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, that was many years ago. Yes, um, many years ago. Yes. That's right. T- too bad I haven't grown up yet. <laughs> uh, so tell us, so what's changed? There was millionaires then, and then millionaires now. Are there different habits? Are people doing different things? things to find that well?
2: Yep, right. So the differences are primarily in like the spending. So for example, we see quite a difference in terms of how much they're spending on homes and things like that. Of course, there's some inflation and things like that that we have to take into account. And we also see, of course, there's an increase in the number of millionaires in the study we did uh, a couple of years ago in terms of their education. So having a bachelor's degree is almost like having a high school degree was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so we see more millionaires that reported going to graduate school and things like that as well. So, of course, those are extra costs that you have to think about. But in terms of the behaviors and sort of the things, again, being frugal, spending time managing your finances and things like that, those haven't changed. And the differences between people that are really, really good at building wealth over time and those that struggle with it, even if they have the same income, for example, those differences still appear. Things like being frugal, having a budget and really sticking to that, especially in the early part of their journey, if you will.
3: Well, I'll tell you, when when I first read your dad's book years ago, to me it was really refreshing because when you're younger, you kind of have the impression that the people that become millionaires either inherit the money or... They have right. a really big income or something like that. And you, you see people driving fancy cars and, gosh, I wish I was like that. I guess I won't be like that. And, and then you realize that a millionaire, it's more of a mindset. It's, uh, it, right. do, it almost doesn't really matter what your income is as long as you're spending below your means. And the people that get there, and that, that's what's such a neat premise is that anyone can become a millionaire next door. And then the actual principles haven't really changed that much.
2: That's right. And I think, too, you know, we've had people mention to us on uh, multiple occasions that, you know, OK, well, even a million dollars isn't that much anymore, which, you know, I say, well, then tell that to someone that doesn't have yeah, that yet. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, so and things like that. So it really, too, is just kind of your definition of financial success. Maybe it's a million dollars, maybe it's two million dollars, but the same behaviors, the same kinds of habits are going to get you there.
0: Yeah, the ability to use that million dollars in 1996, it went a lot further than it does now, so maybe the next book will be The
1: Billionaire next door. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right.
2: or,
0: the,
1: or the multi-millionaire <laughs> right. next door. Yeah.
2: Deca-millionaire, right, exactly.
1: You know, I saw a study in San Francisco, there's like one out of every like 11,000 people is a billionaire.
2: Mm.
1: That's pretty incredible. Yeah. That is. That is
2: incredible. Yep, yep, definitely. You, you know,
1: piggybacking off what Alan says, let's see say if I was an individual that made fifty to $60,000. And it's like, there is no way that I could ever amass a million dollars. Was there a certain in- income range where you found in the studies that, all right, well, if someone made a certain amount of income, they had a better chance? Or was it, hey, even if someone made $60,000 a year, it was their habits of being frugal and making sure that they saved, where the income didn't necessarily matter?
2: Yeah, so we've done a lot of different studies out there in addition to the millionaire study that was in the, in the book. Um, and what we found is regardless of sort of your age or your income level, if you have these certain behaviors, uh, you know, kind of behavioral patterns, if you will, um, things that you do all the time, they tend to predict net worth regardless of how old you are or how much you make. So if you take someone, again, take two folks, they're making the same amount, they're both, you know, 40 years old. One of them can ignore what their neighbors are driving. They, you know, take on responsibility for their financial success. And again, they're they're more frugal and they maybe make better decisions in terms of being confident about their finances that individual will have a better chance of building wealth over time. And if you're not in that camp, so you know, today maybe you're lacking some confidence or knowledge about finances or you know you tend to really pay attention to what's going on on social media related to where people are going on vacation and who got a new car and all of that. Those are things that you can change. Those are things that you can change over time. And so I think that that, again, even if you're today not in a position, if you will, in terms of your habits and behaviors to build wealth, the good news is that you can change those.
1: We have several people on this show that have written books and some are good and some, some, are, oh,
2: dear. some are not,
1: not so good. Um, but there's a few books that inspire or make people change. And your book did that, in a sense. You read through it and you're like, you know what? I don't care where you're at. You can get to a certain level if you just change minor behaviors. Um, and it's just little tweaks, you know? I think uh, yep. I, what's, uh, Sabatier, Sabat- what's Sabatier, Grant yes, yeah, Sabatier, his I got book his <laughs> Financial right. Freedom, yes. yes. Right, you know, so then it's like here, all you gotta do is just maybe save an extra dollar a month, or uh, extra, extra percentage yeah. for me, a percentage of my income, it's a dollar, alright? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, that's true, one and the same. <laughs> it's the same. The same. You know, and it's like okay, I can see these baby little steps to help me to get to wealth. And I think with with your book, it's like hey, you know what? Every anyone can do this if they have the right mindsets and the, if they can put themselves in the right behaviors, um, and if you can get that mindset or get excited or get motivated to take control of your finances. I mean, I think that is so much more powerful than you know reading a book of you know tax code or or other things. <laughs> right. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, definitely. I think you know that's where that's where the psychology comes in for sure. Is keeping you know setting goals that are meaningful to you, um, and and keeping that in mind as you make those small changes. Um, because if somebody tells me you know I need to only have two you know go to Starbucks twice a week you know and that's going to be part of my plan that's meaningless if I don't have this sort of overarching goal of, um, you know, saving a certain amount or preparing for, you know, my child's college education or something like that. So I I think that that's where that comes in. And you're right, they are baby steps. Um, There's a great book by Charles Duhigg called Habit, um, where he really, he's not a psychologist, but he dives into the psychology of changing some of those things that are just habits for us, you know? And, and I really like the way that he, you know, talks about making some of those small changes so that they actually stick.
3: My parents were born in the Depression years, and they're still around in their 80s, and they learned how to be frugal just because that's what everybody did during the Depression, there was no choice. They stuck with those habits their entire life, and now they're retired, of course, and they've got plenty of money, but they can't, they can't spend right Mm -hmm. and and is any of your research for folks that get into this mindset which is a great mindset but how do you kind of then at some point be able to say you know what we've done a great job how can we enjoy some of this a little bit more
2: Yeah. so we, we don't study that too much other than to say that those same behaviors that allow you to build wealth allow you to sustain wealth but to your point if you know, it's time to sort of spend and enjoy what you've made. Um, that too takes a habit change because you've spent your entire life trying to accumulate and save and be very thoughtful about that. Obviously, they've got behaviors that are, you know, they they had some very significant life experiences that led them to those behaviors. So now it's really going to take some work to sort of change those over time. But certainly, it's the same kind of steps that you go through to change, you know, to to take someone that's not living below their means and and have them kind of focus on that.
1: Was there any major surprises, um, you know, riding the, the next millionaire next door?
2: You know, I think the big surprise to me was we focused a lot on sort of investing mistakes in in the book and, and in the study. We asked sort of practical applications of some of those cognitive biases like gambler's fallacy and things like that. And we found that millionaires, you know, they, they reported making quite a few mistakes in terms of investments. And I think To me, what that what that signaled was, um, again, for individuals who think, you know, investing's not for me. I'm not you know, I'm not taking a chance. Um, I saw what happened, you know, in 2007, 2008, 2009. Um, You know, millionaires, they spend the time to study their investments. They are continuing to invest despite, you know, some of the things that have happened in the past and the choices that they've made. It's that time that they spend, again, building their knowledge and and really, you know, doing a good job at investing that's allowing them to be successful. So I thought that that was pretty, you know, pretty interesting given that there's so many studies out there now talking about millennials, Gen Y folks that are saying, you know, investing is really not for me. Um, and and so that's again another another reason why understanding how people that are successful at building wealth, um, the, you know, they're good role models.
1: Yeah, without question. And the behavior side is really intriguing. I mean, I guess it's been now over the last ten years of. It's probably been longer than that. Where behavioral finance is is Mm -hmm. on the forefront of, you know, you could have a really crappy mutual fund, but as long as you kind of stick with your plan, you're probably going to do a hell of a lot better than most investors because you know they're getting in and out of the overall markets, or you know, there's the recency bias and everything else. And I saw a study of fifty-seven percent of people that own exchange-traded funds get out prior than a year. Yeah, mm. You know, it's crazy. So they're day trading products that should be just kind of bought in in help for the yeah, for, 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 yeah yep. for the long term. So you dive into the the behavioral side of things what are yep. some of the things that people can do just to, so we we're not idiots you know right. what the hell do we got to do to <laughs> stop this
2: we talk about that a little bit you know in terms of kind of the the holding period so millionaires are not they're not day traders and 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 specifically you know prodigious accumulators of wealth which is Um, a fancy way of saying people that are really good at at transforming their income into wealth. Um, They tend to, you know, hold their investments for for quite a while. So again, I think on average, it ends up being about three to five years. So they're not in and out of the market too terribly much. And, And so that's one of the pieces as well. I think that, again, going back to kind of what you can do, these folks tend to spend time managing their finances and, and set aside time to do that. We've seen that consistently, whether we're talking about people that are sort of emerging affluent, they're just kind of on their way um, to those that are millionaires and deca-millionaires. They set aside time each month, time that's not distracted by social media or what have you, to really focus on building knowledge, on understanding what's going on in their financial lives, not keeping their head in the sand, that kind of thing as well.
1: Do you have an like a crazy amount of pressure? And Do what I, I mean, have- yeah, what I mean by that <laughs> is that you and I are similar age mm-hmm. and your father wrote this book that, you know, kind of changed the lives of a lot of finance people and then plus, you know, everyone else and then you come in and you write this great book and you have all this research and you know all this stuff about behavior. I mean, do you ever spend money on, like, really stupid stuff?
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't, and then don't, do you feel, like, super yeah.
1: guilty about it? You're like, oh, my God, I am, like, the queen of this, and I should right. not be buying this. And then yes. then you, you just go in this, like, whole guilt thing? Do you or- a little yeah.
3: self-reflection
2: she here, said, Alan? She's no not going to cycle analyze. No, no. no I, can, I, can, I can analyze myself. So, um, you know, and my father, too, you know, we – he wrote about individuals that, that build wealth over time. And, and so that's part of what I study. That doesn't mean that I don't have the same, you know, make the same mistakes that I talk about that you shouldn't make. Um, and luckily I'm, I'm married to someone that has the, those behaviors, um, uh, in spades and I'm more of the, oh, the money will come in somewhere. We'll figure this out. You know, that's not, so in terms of, um, spending money on stupid stuff, definitely have done that. And um, again, my, my focus is always on the income side as being an entrepreneur um, and less on the financial management side.
1: What's the stupidest thing you've ever bought?
2: I think I bought Krispy Kreme donuts because I got an E-Trade account and I thought that was so exciting. <laughs> and you mean the I stock or
1: actual the, the donuts? Stock. Oh. Yeah. The donut. I was like, oh, yeah. come on. A baker's dozen of donuts. <laughs> yeah, I got, you know, the worst <laughs> I the purchase I've ever <laughs> made in my life. I spent right. $8 on a donut.
2: <laughs> no, no. Um, the real thing and uh yeah, so that that was a that was a bit that was called, you know, stock picking and um that was before I realized what that what that meant and how um, ill prepared I was to actually do that kind of thing. So that was probably the silliest thing that I've ever done.
0: So how's the stock doing now? <laughs> I don't I don't know.
2: It's, it's, <laughs> it's long gone.
0: But hi, I handed sold. that
2: over to my to, to my accounting department. <laughs> bought um, high and yep. ate it and it was tasty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly.
1: Oh, uh, Dr. Sarah Fala killed it. Um, killed thank it. you so much for uh, hanging out. Where can people find your book?
2: Yeah, you can go to datapoints.com slash The Next Millionaire Next Door, or you can find it on Amazon for sure.
1: The Next Millionaire Next Door, uh, Dr. Sarah Stanley Falah. I, I really appreciate you hanging out. This was a lot of fun.
2: This was fun. Thank you for having me.
0: Read the transcript of this interview in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and find links to Dr. Sarah Stanley Falah's website and to purchase your copy of The Next Millionaire Next Door. In the coming weeks on YMYW, Travis Shakespeare, yes, that is actually his name, will tell us about Playing With Fire, which is the documentary he directed about the Financial Independence Retire Early, or FIRE movement. That begins playing in theaters around the country on June 1st. The land geek Mark Podolsky will tell us the benefits of investing in raw land. Retirement income expert Jamie Hopkins returns to YMYW and so much more. Subscribe to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast or our podcast newsletter so you don't miss a thing. Find links in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And now it is time to bust open that email inbox. If you've got money questions or just want to talk Krispy Kreme and millionaires with Joe and Big Al, go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com, scroll down and click the Ask Joe and Al on air button.
1: Kevin from San Diego. This thing is long, long, long. Um, so um, we're, we, we might have to take this in bite-sized pieces here, okay. Alan. So what, what Kevin from San Diego, He's he writes in, he's like, hey, I'm trying to figure out what to do with universal life policies that have large cash values. As cash value grows, the amount of actually insurance coverage declines. Since I could get the cash value without dying, I think I'd like to get access to this cash value or at least understand other ways to get access than cashing out or dying. Some background. I'm 58. Bride is 55. I have a military pension and some disability income. I'm also still working for another couple years. The disability payment stops at my death. The military retirement is reduced to 55%. So I want the insurance to cover those potential drops in income. I could also use it for long-term care if a doc says I'm going to die soon. When I enter a nursing home and accelerated death benefit or something like that. I won't need the insurance for insurance estate tax. I don't expect to die with that much money. Okay. All right. Thanks for that little backdrop, Kev. Thanks for um, your service, first of all, a little military retirement. so then he bought some life insurance, right, because he's got a pension. And so if he were to die, his bride-to-be um, would only receive 55% of the pension. His VA benefit, I'm guessing, is that's what he has, um, the disability benefit, is uh, would go to zero. Because I've never, ever in my history of financial planning now have met someone that has a military pension that does not have a tax-free VA pension. <laughs> it is pretty common, isn't it? Everyone gets disabled
3: somehow. Somehow. Yeah.
1: Scratched something.
3: Yeah, we would have been disabled years ago. (laughs) That's
1: why they put us on radio. (laughs) Um, But Kevin, thank you for your service. So he's got these universal policies, Al. He's trying to figure out what the hell to do with them. So he continues to write. (sighs) Um, I have a universal life policy with $245,000 coverage and cash value of 91,000 bucks. So he's really covering about one hundred sixty thousand dollars. The insurance is one hundred sixty grand, because ninety thousand is his. Two forty five is what the insurance is. You take the difference. That's what really what he's yeah. Paying and for. I think a lot of people don't really understand
3: that. So you've got a policy. If you pass away, your beneficiary, presumably your bride, gets two hundred forty five thousand dollars. So so that's great. But you have a cash surrender value today, which is your own money of ninety thousand. So as you said, the, the actual insurance value is the difference between the two, because you could take the 90000
1: right now. So he has a net, um, uh, which is paid up in 2021. What paid up means, for those of you keeping score here, is that he would not have to pay any more premiums into the policy. So now that cash value of $91,000 will continue to pay that coverage. Uh, the ninety-one thousand dollars, of course, goes down in value because the cash value is now paying the premiums instead of our friend Kevin. That's paying the premiums out of cash flow. Uh, he's got another one. He's got another um, fully paid-up one with fifty-seven thousand dollars coverage in cash value of twenty-five. Uh, so he's got twenty-five. Again, you do the math, split it in half, whatever. He's got about twenty-five, twenty-seven thousand bucks. Um, I also have two term policies, $300,000 expiring 2024, three hundred fifty dollars policy expiring 2021. My bride has $200,000 in universal life with a cash value of $61,000 uh, and a $30,000 term rider that ends in 2024. Okay, So she's retired part-timer with a $400-a-month pension from PERS, killing it. Boom. I don't need to replace her income. The life insurance value of the permanent policies grows a little bit each year, but not as much as the cash value. Cash value generally is growing about 5% each year. About half of it would be tax-free if I cash it out, basis is 50% or so. I could borrow 70% of the cash value too. The kids have moved out, Uh, still a mortgage, but just some wedding and grad school tuition assistance. Uh, my health is not good enough to get a preferred rate if I buy new policies. Overall, we are in pretty good shape. 1.6 million in investable assets. Split between TSP 401K 457 Roth in a brokerage account. Once we sell the house in Leaf, California, uh we should be set. Uh so the insurance is really land yap. Lanyap. Yeah.
3: You know what lanyap means? Yeah, it's, it's a bonus.
1: Yeah, it's just like, you kind know, of hey, you know. Yeah. It's like an extra extra, extra, ex- extra gift. Extra. Lanyap. I see that all the time. Don't really need it, yeah. You know. Of course, a,
3: Andy had to look that up But uh,
1: Yeah, because I would have said lanyap.
3: Yeah, I would have said, yeah, lanyap. Lanyap. I guess the G is silent.
0: Nice job pulling that off, guys.
3: Insurance is really a lanyap. It was a lanyap. hippie. Do <laughs> you think he did that on purpose uh, probably because he knows we can't
1: pronounce Lagnia Pepe yeah so all right let's so let's let's okay Ke- oh Kevin if I would charge by the um uh, w- yeah w- words here, holy buckets what should he do with these policies al um you know what one thing he didn't really tell us is uh, how much is his pension you know what I mean? So is the cash or is the life insurance policy if he dies is that enough to cover his bride you know to, to cover that that pension
3: Yeah because the survivor benefits only 55%. So in other words 45% of that pension would go away and the VA disability would go away.
1: Here's what I would do. If I was Kevin <clears throat> I would run two scenarios I'm going to be like, all right, because he's leaving California. I don't know where he's going. Why would you want to leave California, Kevin? Probably because the cost of living here is very high and the taxes are through the roof. Uh, besides that? Yeah, besides that, it's a great place to be. <laughs> it's a great place to be. Um, so he's splitting. So he needs to figure out first, how much money is he spending, right? How much money are you as a couple spending? Yeah, and, then, and what what's the need if you were to pass away? I think that's what you're concerned right. yeah. about. he's got 1.6 million dollars. He's got a military pension, a VA pension. He'll have Social Security, right? He's pretty young, right? Oh, uh, he's, he's 58. 58. So he's got 10 years to bridge, roughly. You know, a little bit less than that um, for Social Security depends on when he retires. Right, she's retired. She's killing it. She's 55, uh, making 400 bucks a month, uh, um, part time. But then. So it's like, all right, you're leaving California. How much money do you want to spend? Here's your fixed income. Is that covering 100% of your living expenses? If it is, you know what? I would get rid of the insurance altogether. I'd cash that thing out. Because if you die, you have $1.6 million that's going to your bride that would be plenty to cover her needs.
3: Yeah, so in other words, even though the
1: fixed income would go down, there's this big pool of... Of money. There's a pool of money to cover right. to, to pay for the other 45% of pension that's that's leaving, plus whatever your VA is. And as you mentioned, the insurance coverage really isn't that high when you consider a
3: lot of this is already your own money. The the one policy, which is smaller, it's almost half of it is
1: your own money. Right. And man, uh, uh, you've got a lot of insurance, Kevin. Is, is your neighbor an insurance agent? <laughs> <laughs> or your brother-in-law Now on
3: on the other hand Joe if uh, if Kevin were not in good health at all and felt a very short impaired life expectancy. Yeah, of course you keep it. Uh, yeah, you keep it, right? Sure. Because
1: that's that's Because then you look at the internal rate of return. Yeah. Because you look at $91,000 growing to $245,000. Let's say Kevin's going to die in 5 years. Well, 90,000 growing to 245 in 5 years, that's a pretty high that's, internal that's rate of return. Probably not going to happen. All tax free to yeah. the beneficiary, of course. Right. So you look at it, you can look at it that way too. And say, all right, well, here, what's my life expectancy? I yeah, I'm a pretty healthy. Guy, I got 10 years to live, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 years to live, the death benefit's going to be $245,000. You take that $90,000 out, pay a little bit of tax, some of it's going to be return of basis, now you have full access to it, right? And then what's your break even? How long can that $90,000 go to two hundred forty-five? dollars What's your internal rate of return? If you think, hey, the insurance is better, because A, at least the heirs are going to get it, but it sounds to me he wants to burn through everything. Right, It says, hey, the kids or whatever, they're, they're out of the house. And they're all good. It sounds like he was a really good saver. Right. He's got $1.6 million. You probably needed the insurance at the time to protect your income. I don't know. You met your bride. It's, it, I mean, the bride, is that like bride-to-be or wife?
0: That's wife. He calls her his bride.
1: Oh, that's so sweet. It is. I thought he was like, <laughs> hey, hooking up with a, you know, my bride. Yeah. So they've probably that- been married for 30 years. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, they are probably high school sweethearts. <laughs> so that's what it sounds like. And right? every day is like wedding day. It's so good. It's awesome. That's what uh, you want. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm still waiting for I it. Know, I right? want to be like Kev. Yeah. <laughs> I want I want pensions in 1.6. Yeah, Leaving California. And a bride. And have my bride. A disability income tax-free. Yeah, it's it's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. That's how I would look at it I mean yeah, I do, agree. you got any other comments on this
3: well I'll put it this way for most healthy people I, I would not keep the insurance and I like
1: how you point to yourself like
3: yeah 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 <laughs> like, most, like, <laughs> like, like myself like yeah like most <laughs> because because I think you can do better with the cash value on your own
1: well do do the math let's figure it out okay so for those of you that have cash value and in insurance um, few things that you want to look at, we're running an example here that Kevin had a two hundred forty-five or two hundred fifty thousand dollars death benefit in his life insurance policy. He has ninety-one thousand dollars of cash value. He didn't even tell us what the premium was because he still he's still paying premium for another couple of years. Right. We assumed that there was no more premium. Yeah. So then the question was, do I keep this or do I get rid of it? So. You can run an, a calculation. So Al ran a calculation one way, and I ran it another way. So we can. So it, it depends on if you're right or left hand bra- brained uh, to, to see what makes the most sense for
3: you. All right. So I'll I'll go through my calculation, which is it's looking at the ninety one thousand and and what could that earn. Uh, on its own, like outside of the, the insurance policy. Now, of course, there would be taxes. We're, make, we're keeping this really simple, right? So, in other words, uh, if you take $91,000 and you do a 6% rate of return, that's pretty conservative, over a 10-year period, you would end up with 163000 So, let's compare that to the life insurance policy, which is two fifty. So, if you think you're going to live less than 10 years, you might just want to keep the Insurance policy, right? Yeah. Because you, you're not going to do better than that unless you take a lot of risk.
1: Or unless you need capital to spend.
3: Sure. Now, a uh, 20-year at 6% would be 291000 so you'd do better doing that than having the insurance. And a 30-year would be 523000 so you'd actually do a lot better than, than the insurance.
1: So um, Kevin is 58, correct? Correct. So the likelihood of Kevin reaching age 88... I would say is probably 60%, 70%? Yeah,
3: or at least 50
1: I mean, th- that's today.
3: That's today. Well, it's
1: six- Just wait for 20 years. I yeah. mean, they're going to be putting little chips <laughs> in our bread, and we'll live for 120. Well, just You I mean, got cancer? No problem. Here's yeah, a pill. Right. Just, I mean, just today. A six- you don't think so?
0: I, I think that would be awesome. I think that's so, too. I'm <laughs> signing up tomorrow. Right.
3: <laughs> So yeah, so just today, Joe. So sixty-five year old male. Uh, the average is age eighty-four, and so you're you're saying now when he gets to that point, it'll be there'll be a lot more medical advances, and I tend to agree with that.
1: Sure, I mean you can see the advance. I mean, each week, each month, each year. I mean, there's a little bit more. So, right? so
3: in other words, another way to say this is thirty years is not unrealistic
1: at all. So for Kevin to get to age eighty-eight, that's very possible. So how I ran this for Kevin is that I looked at, all right, if you got $91,000 and that is going to pay out a $250,000 death benefit, and let's assume that Kevin reaches age 88, right. so 30 years, what is his rate of return? Um, it would be 3.31%. So in other words, inside the insurance policy, what
3: did that 91000 at 3.36% is what to get to... 250
1: right so let's say if you had ninety thousand dollars you invested it for 30 years at three and a half percent roughly you would have 250 grand got it so then the so then how you look at it is to say all right over the next 30 years do you think I could achieve a higher rate of return than 3.3 percent or am I good with that guarantee because that's his guarantee he's going to die right we know that that's a guarantee we just don't know when if he dies prior to, let's say, 88, well, then that internal rate of return is a lot higher. Sure. If he dies past that 88, then that internal rate of return is lower. So it's just looking at, A, do you need the insurance? Given the the small facts that we know about him, I would say probably not, uh, because he has a lot of other assets. He's got a good pension, and he's got a lot of other assets Right. for, for, and, for his bride to take over. Yes. And... Um, and two, uh, it doesn't sound like he wants to give a legacy, you know, hey, let's build this thing up. Um, the final thing that I would do um, is, I bet you that policy is pretty old. And, but I don't know. I, I'm, I'm guessing here because it looks like Kevin loves to buy insurance and he's probably already checked this out. He says his health is not really necessarily in great
3: shape. Yeah, because he was maybe looking at either redoing it, getting a different policy, or maybe an additional
1: policy. I would say still check it out because that ninety one thousand dollars, let's see if he bought that policy twenty years ago. So the cost of insurance for you know, the 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 tables that they used twenty years ago are completely different today. The life insurance industry was completely different 20 years ago than it is today, because you more or less had mutual type insurance country. I mean, you know, companies. Sure, Mutual of Omaha, right. Mass Mutual, Northwestern Mutual. Well, you know the names, right? And so, what has happened to these big life insurance companies is that they demutualized, and now they're stock companies. And so, in a mutual life insurance company, the the policy owners are the owners of the company. So, if I own a policy, I own the company. In a stock company, the stockholders are right. That's us. If we want to buy Lincoln Financial, we're a stockholder. We want profits. We're demanding, right? We have a board of directors. Let's fire the CEO. Let's do this. Capitalism. And so, what has happened is drove pricing. Right, Because there's more competition, it's like sell more policies. Sell more policies is drive pricing a little bit lower. Plus actuarial, we're living a lot longer. So the price of insurance today is completely different than when it was maybe 20 years ago. So it might make sense for him to look and say maybe that $90,000 of cash value could buy him, I don't know, maybe $400,000. Because they're doing the same math that you and I did, bud. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? And and the other thing, too, like, let's just say that that
3: worked. And then he could do a 1035 exchange. And so he wouldn't have to pay taxes on any built-in gains inside the cash value.
1: Right. And so it's a tax-free transaction. You don't need the money. You look at all right. The insurance company saying, okay, the internal three point three six. All right, well let's we could give them a little bit more than that because it's just arbitrage. They're taking that money, they're investing it in something else, and trying to get a higher rate of return, just like you could do on your own. So, I mean, you you just got to think outside the box here um, and and figure out what's the best for you. So, God, I don't know, man. That's long-winded question and answer. (laughs) They was. But we're but it was thorough. thorough. Exactly. We are very <laughs> thorough here at Your Money Your Wealth. If you give us a question, we're going to take the time and figure it out. If you're trying to make a decision about life insurance, check the podcast show notes and binge
0: all the free insurance resources we've got. Find out if a universal life insurance policy is a good option for you. Watch our videos about various types of annuities. Learn the basics about life insurance and long-term care insurance. And hear Joe go off on a rant about a Reddit discussion on financial planners selling insurance. It's all in the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. And if, after all of that, you still have a question, drop the fellas a line by hitting the Ask Joe and Al On Air button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com.
1: Uh, Teresa, she wrote in from San Diego, "Uh, greetings, Uh, your TV program is most informative. I've come across, wow, the most informative TV show she's ever come across. Teresa, that is fantastic. And then she says thank you. Yeah, it's very nice. Uh, My situation is, I'm going to retire at the end of this year. I live in California, but I'm going to move to Texas early next year. I want to convert my 401k dollars in IRA to my Roth IRA after I move to Texas and wait two years to claim Social Security. My question is, because I earned the savings in California, do I have to pay California income tax on the conversions or not pay income tax as I'll be living in Texas? Ah,
3: Good question. Teresa, uh, I got some good news for you. And that is when you've got an IRA or a 401k and you move to another state, when you pull money out of those accounts, when you distribute monies out of those accounts, it's taxed in the state that you're currently resident of. The same goes for a Roth conversion. So if you decide to convert part or all of it, all of that tax is taxed in the state that you're a residence of. And by the way, as you probably know, Texas has no income tax, and so therefore there would be no state tax on the conversion. So that is a way to go.
1: There is federal income tax, but no uh, Texas tax.
3: Yeah, there's exactly.
1: So there are some forms of income, <clears throat> however, that does follow you.
3: Correct. So, for example, Teresa, if you had maybe you're like Greg and you've got a rental property. <laughs> and if you move to Texas with that rental property, and st- it was still a rental property, even though you're a Texas resident, because the property itself is located in California. It's what they call sourced in California, and so you get taxed on California taxation, even though you live in Texas. Another one would be like if there's a, a, like a small business that's located in the state, and you get a K-1, meaning you're a, like a part owner, so you get your share of the profits. Well, that would be taxed potentially in California too if it's a California business. And the way that works is you pay tax in California first, then you pay tax in the state that you live in, and then you get a tax credit in the state you live in. That's generally how it works. Now in this case, if that, if that were the case, since she lives in Texas, there's no tax credit because there's no tax to pay in Texas. Um, <clears throat> what about stock options? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, that's that's a little fuzzy. Right. Um, I would say the basic rule is is this, the stock options, um, the unexercised options. In, in most cases, when you leave a job, your employer requires that you exercise like them 90 within 90 days. days. And in general, the employer is supposed to include that in... The state of residence where you actually earn the money, not your current state of residence. So you could be living in Texas then. So you should be getting a W-2 with your California wages for that year, plus the stock option income in that year. Now, I have seen otherwise, Joe, and, it's, and there's confusion on this, and I have seen companies do it otherwise, but that's the basic rule. When it
1: comes to options, it actually comes back to the state where you earned it great question, Teresa. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth.
0: Oh, yeah, we got derails this week. Stick around for them. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sarah Stanley Fuller. Check out the podcast show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to find links to Sarah's website and her book, The Next Millionaire Next Door, to share the interview on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or via email, and to subscribe to the Your Money, Your Wealth podcast and newsletter for free. Your Money, Your Wealth is presented by Pure Financial Advisors for your free two-meeting financial assessment with a certified financial planner, just click the free assessment button at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and
1: informed investment decision. What um, is in store today is going to be pretty special. Did you know this?
3: I I do actually. I'm part of the show, so I do know.
1: Just <laughs> did some research. Yes. We have, as,
3: as our guest does a lot of research.
1: Yes, a lot, a lot more than we do. Yes, so that's quite. Why we, <laughs> well, that's why. <laughs> Sarah, we need some help. <laughs> that's why we um, have our. We have Doctor Sarah Stanley Falla. Falla. Well, Falla. Falla. Yes.
2: yes exactly thanks for having me glad to be here I'm not sure I'm that kind of psychologist though so I don't know if I can give you too much help but um, oh well yeah, then yeah. okay
3: then this interview is <laughs> over <laughs> any, any, any help would do. Yeah,
2: yeah I'm sorry yeah. I, was, I
1: was gonna say yep.
3: I, I, I think sometimes when people hear living below your means and being frugal then they think about it and they say, no, not for me, because I gotta have my latte at Starbucks. And there's right. there's actually books out there that tell you not to buy the latte, the latte factor, for example. Right. Yeah. But but the, the point is it's there's are certain things that will be meaningful to you. You don't have to give up everything. You just have to figure out what's less important for you and give up those things. And and as you said, Joe, those minor tweaks can make a, a really big difference. <laughs>
0: Somebody go I was, ahead. Yeah, I, was, I heard a, a breath, and I yeah. got nervous.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Anyway, this is, this I, is I, because is. Alan says a statement, it's like E. F. Hutton, man.
3: <laughs> well, I have a, I have a question. Let me, let me, let me do this again. Okay. So please. I have a real question, and and that is because I think none of us were listening to anything that <laughs> no, no, you said. I
0: no, we were listening. It was yeah. so profound that we just yeah. We I was were. Like, oh my God. So,
3: I, I hope so someone says something. So I'm gonna. I'm going to make a statement and then I'm going to ask a question. How, how about that? Why do I do that?